It's good to see you today. My name is Pastor Scott. I'm the pastor of Karen Seniors here at the church. And uh, you may have seen the FAC Weekly that was sent out Friday and known what this service was about. Uh, I hope that you do do that and that you read the passage ahead of time so that you can begin to prepare yourself for Sunday mornings. As I said in that email, when most churchgoers think of worship, they think of the songs that we're going to sing on Sunday morning, and that's a part of it. But worship is far more than that. Worship is giving all of ourselves as Christ followers to our Heavenly Father. So let's open up here with Psalm 145. Please take your Bibles, uh, open up your electronic devices if that's what you're using. There's a pew Bible in front of you that you can use. We're in Psalm 145, and I'm going to be reading the whole psalm. Just be grateful it's not Psalm 119. Psalm 145, I'm reading out of the New American Standard. I will extol you, my God, O King, and I will bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and I will praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and highly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall praise your works to another, and you shall declare your mighty acts. On the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wonderful works, I will meditate. Men shall speak of the power of your awesome acts, and I will tell of your greatness. They shall eagerly utter the memory of your abundant goodness, and I will shout joyfully of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and great in loving kindness. I should hear an amen after that one, right? The Lord is good to all, and his mercies are over all his works. All your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord, and your godly ones shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and talk of your power, to make known to the sons of men your mighty acts and the glory of the majesty of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and your dominion endures throughout all generations. The Lord sustains all who fall and raises up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you, and you give them their food in due time. You open your hand and satisfy the desire of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his deeds. The Lord is near to all who call upon him, to all who call upon him in truth. He will fulfill the desires of those who fear him, and he will also hear their cry and save them. The Lord keeps all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. My mouth will speak the praise of the Lord, and all flesh will bless his holy name forever and ever. Father, we, we lift this word up because it is your word, and we ask that your spirit would be our teacher this morning. Remove the distractions that may have come with us so that we can hear what you have to say to us. Amen. Worship is made up of our heart attitude. In other words, are you right with God? It is made up of our mind. How many times do we find ourselves distracted when we're trying to worship? Worship is made up of our voice. Are you singing or are you just listening? Do you read along when we have Scripture reading as a group? And worship is also made up of our actions. 
Actions such as bowing and kneeling, both of these are signs of submission to Almighty God. And uh, lifting our hands and clapping. Did you know that both of those are actual scriptural commands for us? This is a psalm that begins with a commitment that on the surface may seem rather simple. It says, I will extol you, my God, O King. I will bless your name forever and ever. Now, King David is the one who wrote this psalm, so I'll just refer to him by name for the rest of this service. But David says that he is going to exalt or extol or bless or praise or worship, depending on which translation you're using. And maybe our thought is, well, that sounds easy enough. But when we examine his words more closely, we discover a clue that the act of worship may involve more than we thought. In the first two verses alone, King David uses three verbs to describe this act of worship to God. To praise God is to exalt him. In other words, to lift him up. To praise God is to bless him, to praise him from our heart. And to praise God is to laud him or exalt him or extol him. Another way of saying to laud God or to extol or to exalt would be to say, I'm going to make a big deal about God. Apparently, there's more to worshiping God than simply saying or singing certain words. There is an entire vocabulary that is devoted to this subject of worship. Another feature of this psalm is that it's cast in an acrostic form. Now, this is going to take you back to high school English, right? Do you remember what an acrostic is? It's one word, and then you you take different words off of it that kind of summarize what that is. And so I have an example for you on the screen there. It's Scott, super cool, otherworldly, terrific teacher. Now, you're never going to forget what an acrostic is, right? You may not agree with my example, but you're not going to forget it. Although we can't see the acrostic in our English translations because the Bible was not written in English. The Old Testament was written in Hebrew. There is an acrostic, and each verse starts with the next letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So verse 1 starts with the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet, and the second verse begins with the second letter of the Hebrew alphabet, and so on until all of the letters of the Hebrew alphabet are used except for one. And I'm assuming that that that, uh, is kind of like our Q or our X in the English alphabet, kind of hard to do in an acrostic with Qs and Xs in it, right? So I guess in a way, when we look at Psalm 145 and we know that it's an acrostic using the Hebrew alphabet, I guess what we could say is that Psalm 145 is telling us the ABCs of worship. David outlines some of the fundamentals of worship, instructing us how to praise God in a way that is most fitting. So the first thing we're going to look at is the art of worship is actually learned. It is not innate. We learn how to worship God by learning from others, by hearing them do it, by watching them praise God and to worship Him. The verse says, one generation will commend your works to another. Now, unfortunately, in the American church today, I think that we're working under two very unhelpful mindsets. The first one I mentioned already is that we tend to think that worship 
equals the three songs that we sing on Sunday morning and nothing else. And that's only a part of a Christ follower's worship. The second is that every generation has its strong preference of music style and are convinced, depending, it doesn't matter which side you're on, they are convinced that their style is the only right way to worship God. Now, I'm just going to tell you right now, don't come and talk to me after the service and try to convince me of your point of view. I've been in ministry for over 20 years, and I have heard every argument on both sides of the argument. And I bet that I could actually make a better argument for your side than you can, no matter which side you're on. That's how many debates that I've listened to. Now, it's not that I'm not sympathetic. I just think that every argument I've heard from every side is missing the real point of worship. And yes, I do understand, and I am sympathetic about decibel levels for people who wear hearing aids. I became more aware of that not because I wear a hearing aid, but because my godly grandmother did, and she told me about it. Do what you need to do. Maybe it's turning your hearing aid down. Maybe it's sitting in a different part of the building because there are other parts of the building that are not quite as loud. But most importantly, remember to maintain a godly attitude. And by the way, I think all of you are going to be very surprised to find out that someday in heaven that all worship is going to be through the form of Gregorian chants. (laughs) Now, here's the real point of worship. Where is your heart? Let's not ever let our worship service become a point of contention. The psalm teaches us that one generation teaches another generation the fundamental heart attitude of worship. We shouldn't be surprised, really. That is how how we all learn everything in life, right? That's how we learn to speak, because somebody spoke to us, and we heard their words. We watched their lips and their, their mouth and their tongue form different words. And as they spoke to us, we began to speak back. Nobody is born speaking. Your, your child, when, when they were born, boy or girl, didn't come out and say, Hey, Mom, hey, Dad. That doesn't happen. That's how we learn the alphabet. Somebody teaches us, and then we repeat it. And this is how we also learn to worship God. The language of praise, like all languages, is first learned by listening to others worship God. One generation commends the work of God to another. What the older generation is being commanded to do is to teach the heart attitude of worship. If those of us who are part of that older generation only hear in David's words a justification for the style of music that we personally prefer, then we have missed his point altogether. And those who prefer a contemporary style, don't say, well, I know how I can best worship and don't try to push your way on me. It's the same from both sides. David's emphasis is on what is said and to whom it is said more than how it is said. In verse 4, it is God's acts that are in view. This is the testimony of God's experience, or our experience of God, what God has done. In verse 5, God's majesty and his miracles are highlighted. It says, They will speak of the glorious splendor of your majesty, and I will meditate on your wonderful works. 
The splendor spoken of here is a kingly splendor. There is an exalted quality to it. So much so that David piles up descriptive word after descriptive word to give us a sense of how truly exalted God is. And it seems likely that that phrase, the the wonderful works that David has in view, are actually the miracles that God performed when he brought the children of Israel out of slavery, out of the land of Egypt. Because in Exodus chapter 14, verse 4, the Lord promised Moses... Thus I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will chase after my people. And I will be honored through Pharaoh and all his army, and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. And that is exactly what happened. The psalm writer's reference to the glorious splendor of God's majesty would have reminded anybody with a a memory of Israel's history of the Shekinah, of that glory that filled the Holy of Holies and no man could experience without falling dead. People shall speak of the power of your awesome acts, it says in verse 6, and I will tell of your greatness. Here's another element I think that is starkly absent from much of the American church today. This sense of awe and this sense of reverence in the presence of God. The mighty acts of God inspired awe and even fear in those who experienced them. Contrast that with the perspective that shapes the worship experiences in so many churches today because many people are more concerned with familiarity. I want to read to you uh, something that I found in a book this last week. Uh, The book is called The Divine Commodity. And the author argues that churches today have turned God into a commodity. That churches are promoting experience and are producing consumers instead of producing worshipers. And so he says, if our worship gatherings are energetic, stimulating, and exciting enough, then we think people will attend and receive what's being communicated and be spiritually transformed. The justification for this approach is simple, he says. People won't come to a church that they find boring. And what qualifies as boring is defined by our consumer experience and economy, end quote. People are thinking, is the pastor's message entertaining enough to keep my attention? About seven or eight years ago, we were looking for a worship pastor, and we thought that we had found the right man and had offered him the position, and he was thinking, uh, debating between this church and another church, and he turned down our offer and said that one of the reasons he chose the other church is that their children's ministry was more glamorous and entertaining. Now, granted, that's my spin on how he more delicately described his decision-making process. One of the most damaging effects of this consumer philosophy has been to isolate and to polarize the generations in the church. Instead of one generation commending God's work to another, each generation retreats to their own personal and preferred styles. Sometimes this even results in a church deciding we're going to have two different uh, worship styles. We're going to have a first service that's a 
a traditional style, and then the second service is going to be a contemporary style. And if I may, you have not created two separate services. You have created two separate churches that share the same address. The picture that David paints is radically different from that. His portrait of worship is responsive, like a giant choir with a call and a response, with each generation marveling at God's miraculous deeds. Each generation's testimony conveys to the other a sense of awe and reverence. Notice that while there is a kind of a give and a take in David's description, for example, one speaks and another meditates, no one is passive And no one in the end is silent. Now, please do not misunderstand me. I don't mean to minimize the very real and substantial differences that separate people in the matter of worship. But contrast the self-centeredness that so often marks a worship experience with what we find in verse 7. It says, "...they shall eagerly utter the memory of your abundant goodness." and will shout joyfully of your righteousness. Now, what church is there today that could read that verse and not feel at least some remorse? We ought to fall to our knees and plead with God to rescue us from ourselves because implied in David's words is this fundamental truth. Whether or not we like one another's preferred style of music, We need one another to learn how to praise God the way that he deserves to be praised. Can I repeat that? Whether or not we like one another's preferred style of music, we need one another to learn how to praise God the way he deserves to be praised. Now let's talk about the art of praise being theological, not primarily emotional. If worship is theological in nature, and it is, we need to make sure that the songs we use in worship are based on sound biblical theology. I'm not going to, but I could probably spend the next hour listing songs that have poor theology, songs that put us at the center instead of putting God at the center. And I'm not only speaking of new worship songs because there are a number of our more traditional hymns that also have very poor theology. Instead of listing songs and hymns that I really don't think that we should be singing and then making a number of enemies in the process this morning, I would rather encourage us as a church to choose our songs of worship wisely. There are so many hymns. There are so many newer praise songs to choose from that there's no excuse for choosing songs that have nine good lines of theology and one line of terrible theology merely because most of it is good and we like the tune. Worship is grounded in the nature of God. The psalm writer emphasizes three attributes that inform our practice of worship. The first is God's grace. The second is God's power. And the third is God's goodness. God's grace is mentioned in verse 8. He says, The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and great in loving kindness. God's grace and compassion are often linked together in the Old Testament. Both point to God's disposition towards us. He is gracious and inclined to show us favor, 
even though we don't deserve it. The next two descriptions flow out of the first and have to do with way, uh, the way that God responds to us. Because God is disposed to show His grace, He is slow to anger. And because He feels deep compassion for us, He deals with us in loving kindness. One of the most famous sermons ever preached is a sermon by Jonathan Edwards that's called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. That title would never play in today's church, would it? (laughs) It's a remarkable sermon, and it's designed to stir up a complacent church. And in the sermon, Jonathan Edwards warns his audience that they are in danger of being cast into hell at any moment. Let me read just a few lines from this. He says, Your wickedness makes you, as it were, heavy as lead, and to tend downwards with great weight and pressure towards hell. And if God should let you go, you would immediately sink and swiftly descend and plunge into a bottomless gulf. And your healthy constitution and your own care and prudence and best contrivance, in other words, your works, and all your righteousness would have no more influence to uphold you and keep you out of hell than a spider's web would have to stop a falling rock. The picture that Edwards paints is not a pretty one. He says, Were it not for the sovereign pleasure of God, the earth would not bear you for one moment, for you are a burden to it. So why doesn't God just let us go? What's stopping us from this terrible descent? David tells us, Though God's wrath is real, it is not quickly stirred. He is slow to anger. But more than that, David says, God is great in loving kindness. This is the committed love of God that compels him to keep his promises even when we don't. It is faithful love that is often expressed in the form of a covenant. And amazingly, it's an attribute of God's faithfulness that is often emphasized in contexts where God's people have been unfaithful. In Exodus chapter 33, after uh, this is the time when, when Moses had gone to the top of the mountain to get the Ten Commandments directly from God. And he had left his brother Aaron, the high priest, in charge. And what happened? They made a golden calf and began to worship this image and said, this is the God that delivered us from Egypt. And they began to have an orgy. And God said to Moses, when, when uh, Moses was had, had after he had pled on behalf of the Israelites, he said, I myself will, will make all my goodness pass before you. This is when, when uh, Moses said after this, just let me see you. Let me see your face. And God says, I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show compassion on whom I will show compassion. In other words, he's saying, yes, you you can feel free to ask that, but this is my decision. But he said, you cannot see my face, for no one can see me and live. And then we're told that God hid Moses in a cleft of a rock and covered him with his hand. And then uh, in ver- uh, chapter 34, verses 6 and 7, then the Lord passed by in front of Moses and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord God. And he's actually using his personal name. He's saying Yahweh, 
Yahweh God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness and truth. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? That was in Psalm 145. Who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sins, yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generation. Like Moses, we have come to see God's glory, not directly, but indirectly. We see his grace in sharp contrast to our sin. We see his patience displayed in stark relief over and against our impatience. We see his compassion in contrast to our self-centeredness. We awake in the morning and we, we may have this cold feeling toward God, this indifference. And yet he demonstrates his unfailing love in unexpected and undeserved ways all day long. This isn't a pretty lesson for us to learn, at least in what it reveals to us about ourselves. But it's a necessary one. So why do we worship God today? Because he has not dealt with us as our sins deserved. Verse 9 It says, the Lord is good to all, and his mercies are over all his works. Deuteronomy chapter 7 verse 9 says, he is God, the faithful God who keeps his covenant and his faithfulness to a thousand generations for those who love him and keep his commandments. Of course, God's disposition to show love would mean nothing at all if he did not have a corresponding power to display it. Yes, he is a God of eternal love, but that is meaningless if he's not a God of eternal power. And it's something that David points to in the verses 10 through 13. The important term that David is using in that group of verses is the word kingdom. He's not speaking of a political kingdom, but in verses 10 and 11 it says, All your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord, and your godly ones shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and talk of your power. King David is not writing about a political kingdom. He's not speaking about a military power. This is obvious when kingdom is actually linked to God's power. And so in verse 13 It implies that God is at work in the world today when it says your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and your dominion endures throughout all generations. And that's yet another reason to worship God. I want to share with you an illustration that talks about this contrast between God's eternal kingdom and the political and military kingdoms that we often think of. In the waning days of the Nazi terror, as Allied bombs rained down on the shattered city of Stuttgart, this is after the war had begun to turn, and now the bombs are reaching inside Germany. A pastor with the name of Helmut Tialika, I don't know how many of you are, are expecting a child or a grandchild, I don't suggest the word Helmut as the first name, but he preached a remarkable series of messages from the Lord's Prayer. And one of his most powerful was his sermon on the petition, Thy kingdom come. 
And as he was getting ready to finish that sermon, the bombings began to fall. And he had to finish the sermon at a nearby school because his own church lay in ruins. And in that sermon, Tealica describes a moment of discouragement when all he had done for God had seemed to have gone to pieces. His flock was scattered. His church building was in ruins, and he was utterly discouraged. And as he looked into this concrete pit that used to be the basement of his church, in which 50 young people had been killed with those bombs, a woman approached him. She said, my husband died down there. The cleanup squad was unable to find any trace of him. All that they could find was his cap. We were there the last time you preached in that cathedral church. And here before this pit, I want to thank you for preparing him for eternity. That's a picture of his kingdom. Tealuki said, in this world of death, in this empire of ruins and shell-torn fields, we pray, thy kingdom come. We pray it more than ever. And so do we. Am I waiting for Jesus to come and reign for Jerusalem? I pray for that more and more the older I get. But today, right now, I'm looking for God to manifest his power in the empire of ruins that is my heart. Am I waiting for the day when Jesus Christ will rule the nations with all power? Absolutely I am. But today and right now, I am looking for him to establish his dominion in those shell-torn fields that make up the landscape of my life. Because of this, I expect God to deal with me in a certain way. I expect him to show me his goodness. And verses 14 through 20 show me what that looks like. For example, in verse 14, God says, The Lord sustains all who fall and raises up all who are bowed down. And then in verse 15 it says, The eyes of all look to you, and you give them their food in due time. And verse 16 tells us that God will satisfy our longing. He says, you open your hand and satisfy the desire of every living thing. All of these things lead David to draw three important conclusions that are found in verses 17 through 20. He is a God who is near. He is not a God who is far away. He is a God who listens, not one who turns a deaf ear. He is a God who watches, not a God who closes his eyes to what is going on around him. In short, I can expect God to act in a way that is consistent with his nature. I can expect him to keep his promises. I can expect God to hold me up when I stumble. I can expect him to give me what I need when I need it. I can expect him to be open-handed with me and sensitive to my prayers. I can expect him to do the right thing and to deal with me in love, and to be with me when I cry, I can expect God to save me. And God, for his part, can expect something from me in return. He can expect my worship. I want us now to turn to the New Testament, to Romans chapter 12, because there is a very, very clear 
explanation of how we worship God as Christ followers. Verses 1 and 2 of chapter 12 in Romans. It says, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is acceptable and good and perfect. This passage contains all the elements of true worship. First, there's the motivation for our worship, which is the mercies of God. God's mercies are everything that he has given us that we don't deserve, which is everything. I I made a, a partial list here. Let me just read through these. Eternal love, eternal grace, the Holy Spirit, the gift of the Holy Spirit, everlasting peace, eternal joy, saving faith, comfort, strength, wisdom, hope, patience, kindness, honor, glory, righteousness, security, eternal life, forgiveness, reconciliation, justification, sanctification, freedom from the power of sin, intercession with the God of the universe, and so much more. The knowledge and understanding of these incredible gifts motivate us to pour forth praise and thanksgiving. In other words, our worship. And also in the passage is a description of the manner of our worship. We're told to present our bodies a living and holy sacrifice. Presenting our bodies means giving God all of ourselves. The reference to our body means our hearts and our minds and our hands, our thoughts and attitudes. All of these are to be presented to God in worship. In other words, we're to give up control of all of these things and turn them over to him just as a literal sacrifice was done in the Old Testament when that animal gave everything as a form of sacrifice. That is how we are to sacrifice ourselves to God. But how do we do that? Again, the passage is clear. By the renewing of your mind. We renew our minds daily by cleansing them from the world's wisdom and replacing it with the true wisdom that we find here in God's Word. We worship Him with our renewed and cleansed minds, not with our emotions. Emotions are wonderful things, but they, unless they are shaped by a mind that is saturated in the truth of God, they can be a hindrance to our worship of God. Because where the mind goes, the will follows, and so do our emotions. In 1 Corinthians 2.16, it tells us that we are to have the mind of Christ. It doesn't tell us to have the emotions of Christ. There is only one way to renew our minds, and that is by the Word of God. To know the truth, to believe the truth, to hold convictions about the truth, and to love the truth will naturally lead in true spiritual worship. It is conviction followed by affection, affection that is a response to truth, not to an external stimuli, even including music. Because music is not the origin of worship, but it certainly can be the expression of our worship. 
Don't look to music to induce your worship. Look to music as simply an expression of that which is induced by a heart that is enthralled and gripped by the mercies of God and obedient to his commands. Now, what I haven't said this morning, although I think I've hinted at it pretty strongly, is that Sunday morning, and even more specifically, the worship time is not the full expression of our worship to God. If it is, if the only time we worship God is from 9.30 to 9.45 on Sunday morning, we are very poor at worship. True worship is not confined to what we do in church or what we do when we're singing, although those are both good and they're both commanded in God's Word. True worship is the acknowledgement of God and all His power and glory in everything we do. The highest form of praise and worship is obedience to God and His Word. And to do this, we have to know God. We can't be ignorant of Him. Worship is to glorify and exalt God, to make a big deal about God by the way we live our lives. Let's pray. God, I earnestly pray that I have not been offensive to anyone this morning, but instead have just brought the light of your word where it needs to shine. And may I say to you this morning that if you are already a Christ follower, Maybe this was a reminder that worshiping God is so much more than Sunday morning singing. That worship is not ruled by emotion, but by our theology. And that worship that is divisive is actually not worship at all. If that's what you have heard and embraced this morning, let me take a moment and pray for you. Father, see your children. See them bowing before you in repentance. Father, guide their worship through their lives, through every part of their lives as an a act of obedience to you. And help them in their worship. For those of you who have yet to put your faith and trust in God, you may be here on Sunday morning singing the songs, reading the words of the Bible, and listening to the prayers. But you are not worshiping God because it is impossible to worship God if you have not first submitted your will to him. But today can be the day of salvation for you. Today can be the day that you turn from being an attender to being a worshiper. If you are ready to make that change this morning, I ask you, while the heads are bowed and eyes are closed, would you just raise your hand and say, I am ready to put my trust in God. Father, we thank you for those that have raised their hands this morning. And if you have done that, would you just pray along with me? You don't need to pray out loud, although you can if you want. Heavenly Father, I have come as as an attender for many years, maybe just the first time. But Father, I want to be a worshiper. And to do that, I need to turn to you in repentance. I give you the reins of my life. I give you control of my life. Help me to live as a worshiper of the Almighty God. Father, may you hear these prayers this morning. In Jesus' name.
Amen.